Hello and welcome to our show. You are listening to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. Twice a month, we sit down with guests to have conversations about the intersection of faith and social justice. I am April Johnson, Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry, and I am your host. Welcome to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. I am Reverend April Johnson, and I am your host. Today we are continuing in our series highlighting projects that have received grants from Reconciliation Ministry during the 2019 cycle, and our featured guest today is the Constructive Theologies Project. Um, the executive project director is Reverend Yvonne Gilmore. And Reverend Gilmore, welcome to What's the Tea? And will you introduce uh, the members and Constructive Theologies Project to us? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're so pleased to join you. Uh, we're here actually live in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt Divinity School. We just met with uh, Dean Emily Towns. Uh, we're here for our fall conference. Uh, and I'm here with some of the members, uh, not, not all of them, but some of the members of Constructive Theology Project, uh, including uh, Allison Ruari, uh, Alexis Kassim, uh, Anissa Etris is joining us for this meeting as well. Uh, Eli Rolon is uh, here with us, Andrew Packman, um, Allison uh, Lundblad, uh, and then we're also joined uh, by Alan Ross uh, for this meeting as well. Um, we have uh, folks from throughout the United States and Canada, uh, uh, young adult uh, leaders uh, from across the disciple spectrum, uh, from theological institutions, uh, but uh, nine or eight, of, eight of us are here for this particular meeting. Wonderful, wonderful. So glad to uh, be able to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you uh, during your fall retreat. So during our time together, I'm hoping that we can uh, get some feedback from um, the collective there, the members, uh, how the um, retreat is going. But also, let us uh, just talk quickly about or briefly about um, the project, its inception, um, how has it, um, what influenced the inception of this project, and then what are the intended um, outcomes for the future impact of Constructive Theologies Project? I'm not sure which one of you all want to speak to that. So I'll jump in and, and then others, uh, uh, as there's some moved, about five years ago, um, uh, a few people were in uh, Chicago and there was some conversation about um, uh, the fact that uh, folks from across, you know, different disciple schools don't get to kind of interact um, uh, very much, but uh, also that that interaction uh, would be useful as we we're thinking about the uh, challenges and the possibilities that face the Christian Church Disciples of Christ today. Um, it was kind of a... a, a a recollection of uh, the New Deal and um, its really kind of transformative impact and the fact that um, the New Deal uh, was very much shaped by thought leaders from a variety of disciplines, right? So that there were um, uh, artists and thinkers and doctors and lawyers and uh, scientists and, and all kinds of people, right, that helped to shape um, the, the crises and possibilities that were facing America at the time and that a similar um, uh, multidisciplinary, uh, uh, creative, um, uh, deep, uh, deeply committed, um, uh, you know, gathering of um, 
young disciples thinkers um, could have um, some real uh, creative theological possibilities for um, those leaders themselves, but also for uh, the denomination. Um, I think one person said, uh, the disciples don't have a numbers problem, we have a theology problem. Um, and so uh, we've been uh, meeting to, to particularly think about uh, theologies as they relate to, to race and reconciliation in our denomination um, and the variety of, of theologies that uh, are um, permitted, articulated, lived, um, experienced. Um, and so we've been doing that in a variety of different ways um, in this particular conference thinking about uh, safety and justice and uh, theologies that relate to safety and justice. Um, uh, and we've had this conference theme uh, for a, a while now. Um, we looked at the landscape of justice uh, and theologies that are related to that in Oakland, California. Uh, and then we're here in Nashville, Tennessee, exploring the landscape of justice uh, and theologies that are uh, undergird that here in Nashville, Tennessee. So what have been some of the theologies that you have engaged in uh, this particular uh, conference and the one in um, San Jose that um, have particularly um, stood out with you with reference to safety and justice? Um, so I'll, I'll say in uh, Oakland, uh, which is, is where we were pretty close to San Jose. That's San Jose, right. Uh, no worries. O Oakland, um, there uh, we were pleased to, to be hosted by the Oakland Peace Center yes. and um, to talk with the various partners that uh, are there. And, and of course, Shonda Jai is the executive director. Um, and so she talked to us about uh, that um, community and their, uh, the discernment about transformation in the church and the surrounding um, uh, community. Uh, we met with folks from First Congregational Church, and they have been um, wrestling with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and as a movement and the decision about whether to, to actually make that proclamation uh, via a sign on their church. Um, and so uh, they had some internal conversation about like, you know, what does it mean to say Black Lives Matter? Um, uh, is that right consistent with our faith as um, Christians, uh, and they decided that, that to, to say that was to make some uh, a claim about um, care for the community, uh, right, in terms of, of, of our life before God and shared life before God, uh, but also uh, uh, not only to make a claim about God's care, uh, but to make a claim about, right, their, their own care and commitment for uh, Black bodies and, and Black lives, and so um, they discerned that um, uh, the police were, were not um, uh, uh, at least in their particular uh, geographical area. And they, when we met with them, they like shared the history of um, the police force um, there and that they seemed to be a threat to the safety of um, black lives. And so they saw it as uh, more faithful. Uh, indeed, if they were gonna put this sign up that they would also have a campaign um, uh, not to call the police. It wasn't just that, but that was also occasioned by actually they had uh, some mental health um, issue in terms of mental health at their church, and they had called the police to be a resource and to protect. And um, they did not want the person prosecuted, but the, the police moved forward with uh, prosecuting that person. And so as they sought to go forward as a faith community, um, uh, they, um, yeah, they decided to, to, to uh, begin actively, you know, uh, what they said was to not outsource their safety um, uh, but to champion uh, safety for uh, black and brown bodies and 
um, indeed to take greater ownership of their um, their own safety. And so they, they, they talked about, this is a church also that, that um, is heavily, uh, is, you know, relies on lay leadership. They don't have hierarchies at all. Um, and, and I'll say this was all pretty radical for us <laughs> to, uh, to hear, but it expanded our imagination about uh, when we say, you know, we serve a God of justice um, uh, and we serve a God of, of right, even the oppressed um, of a way, like what, what could that really mean in terms of our um, life and impact? Uh, we also interacted with uh, Reverend Yolanda Norton um, at San Francisco uh, Theological Seminary who talked about the story of um, uh, Rahab, uh, right, who uh, and her um, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they know that story and um, the kinds of um, walls uh, that were up and the, the fact that she secured um, uh, safety, but she really sort of complicated that story um, in, in some different ways. And actually, I won't uh, just go through and rehearse because I, I might butcher her analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I'll say is that the gift of that partly was to, to reread a familiar story um, in light of um, uh, what God perhaps was up to, that it wasn't just um, that she was ensuring um, uh, the safety of uh, folks who sort of would be her, uh, you know, otherwise her, sort of her captors, uh, but that God was yet um, uh, complicating notions of safety and justice, right, even, even in, that, um, exactly. in that work. Uh, and someone that we might otherwise look down upon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, within, within society is actually um, charged, uh, right, with, um, with safety, <laughs> even perhaps, you know, for folks who were perhaps even undeserved. Um, so I'll say that there have been a variety of ways in which we've, we've been um, challenged theologically uh, as, as we've been trying to look at the whole landscape and variety of ideas. And so it's my understanding at this, at this particular conference where I'm speaking with you from, you are also uh, visited by um, a, a leader in the community who is dealing with um, mothers who are addressing or dealing with their uh, loss of their sons due to police violence. Yeah. And so in many ways, what I hear you saying happened in the conference in Oakland at the Oakland Peak Center with First, um, First Christian Church there and with um, Yolanda Norton uh, is um, maybe some exposure to, uh, and, I, I'm, and help explain to me if I'm um, watering down the impact of those exposures, but kind of an embodied theology that leads to like a congregational understanding of its identity in the community and it's called toward what that means uh, to provide safety in the absence of an environment and um, uh, public servants who, who are not at least using their capacity to do that. Is that a, is that a correct assumption? What some of that exposure that you had in Oakland and, and some of what you may have heard um, with the um, guests you had this week uh, there in Nashville? I think actually folks have been befuddled that we would dare uh, <laughs> pair those things together. Uh, uh, well, that, I, it's just, I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so when, I'm sorry, I just probably won't directly answer your question, but I, it was something that I've been chewing on. Um, so 
the, the three speakers that we have uh, engaged with this week, uh, this conference, have all been Black women. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the overarching comment that all three of them, all three of them have said uh, is, based on my experience as a Black woman, I don't have the privilege to be afforded the ability to think about safety. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've really gotten a lot of, we've gotten pushback from all three of our interlocutors uh, to, to even suppose that justice and safety go together. Um, and so that's been um, at least something that I have been thinking about uh, and that's kind of stirred the pot for me. And so, you know, when we think about, Dean Towns just asked the question, who can achieve safety? Um, and so when, when we're thinking about that, you know, I'm, I'm not quite to the level of this is how I can apply this to my congregational context. Um, I think there still needs to be more conversation um, and more work that, that we do as individuals. Uh, Sharizna, the woman who uh, did a, a retreat for Mothers Over Murder, that group, Mm -hmm. um, challenged challenged us by saying, you know, everything that we do needs to be an outpouring and an outgrowth of of the internal work that we do. And so, you know, at least for for me, it's it's still a little bit raw in terms of what we've heard um, to to really think about how do we how do we process this, how do we apply this within ourselves, and then from that, how do we yes. pour forth in terms of thought projects and leaderships in our own context? That's wonderful. And I believe that was, um, Allison, I'm not going to say your last name right because I know you by your maiden name. Who are you? That was, that, well, I was going to say that name. I wasn't going to say the married name. So <laughs> that was Allison Ruari speaking. Knowing about the Constructive Theology Project, are there some other uh, ways in which you have been impacted by those of you in the room uh, that might be uh, helpful to inform how your process is going? It may be a process that may inform our listeners on how their process may, may be in terms of they think about um, justice and, and racial reconciliation as a theology. We know it as an ongoing theological project uh, in general when we talk about it, but often we need to have that conversation about how is racial reconciliation and racial justice and justice just in our communities. How is that? How does our theology inform that? We, we were just with, with uh, Emily Towns. This is Yvonne. We were just with Emily Towns. And so uh, she particularly was uh, uh, pushed back on that. And helping us to understand that she said, look, you can't have uh, racial reconciliation without racial justice. You got to have racial justice um, first. And so uh, as we were talking about it, and actually this week in a lot of our introductions, we started with saying our name and then just justice looks like and trying to kind of put some picture um, with it. But, but uh, when we were asking her, you know, she said, look, justice is um, really getting to know each other, really listening, <laughs> really spending the time. And it's a process, not an event. Um, that it isn't just, uh, you know, that justice making is a process, not an event. And so I think uh, our uh, trying to really take the time, and that listening is across um, racial lines, that, that listening is across um, economic lines, that listening is across um, 
gentle ones that listening and some deep listening to others, but also some deep listening to ourselves um, and kind of really getting to know. And so I think um, uh, that that process is, is something we're committed to. And, and I think it's actually taken us some time to, <laughs> to think about how to live into it as a group. Um, but I think also, as, as Ali said, uh, uh, you know, that it, that is, it has, that listening to others also gives us some resources for thinking about what's really going on in our congregations, in our institutions of higher education, um, in our wider kind of communities. Um, I'll say we, had, we did a meeting a few meetings ago on um, theologies of anger um, and uh, was actually at, uh, in Kansas, in Manhattan, Kansas there. Um, one of our, our uh, Christian Watkins, who's a member of CTP, had been talking about hate crimes um, there on that can campus. And, um, and so we went to think about uh, uh, theologies of anger. And actually, Ross Allen was with us, um, uh, helped us think about courage and anger uh, a bit. And I'm going to invite him to, to say a little more about that. Sure. Yeah, and it, it was interesting because some, I mean, some of the subtext of what we were doing at ECM um, at the time, it come off the backdrop of like a slew of, oh, sorry, ECM is the Ecumenical Campus Ministry. Um, it's, a, it's a partnership of uh, the PC USA Church, the Congregationalist uh, uh, United Church of Christ Congregation, um, the Disciples of Christ Congregation, um, and one other that I'm forgetting <laughs> off the top of my head, um, at, at, yeah, Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. So, um, the, like I said, the, the subtext of what was happening was, was that there's this slew of hate crimes that um, were happening on, on campus and a variety of different groups got targeted in the wake of that. And so as we were kind of trying to do theological reasoning on that and diagnose like what, what exists at some of the root of this hate crime, we really um, brought up this, this con concept that there's an interplay there between anger and courage um, and that hate crimes actually are anger absent in real courage um, because at the, at the end of the day it's someone with power uh, trying to respond to maybe what is a false sense of, of um, lacking safety for themselves um, and in, in trying to reassert that feeling of safety um, they, they take a situation and make other people less safe. Um, and so this is one of the kind of animating quotes that we used um, to probe deeper into that thought um, was from St. Augustine and he said that hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are Anchor and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they do not remain the way that they are. Um, and so from that, I, I kind of was trying to unpack those ideas um, and get a little bit better grasp on what anger um, and courage might, might mean when we give them definitions. Um, so drawing on some of the work of uh, the late Andrew Lester, um, they're from Bright Divinity School, um, we took to thinking about anger as maybe an energy in the body. Um, I think we grow up thinking anger is you know, a particularly bad thing um, and should be avoided uh, to the extent that it can be. Um, but in reality, that's not, not true. It's an evolutionary response. Um, and the anger sometimes can help motivate us to do things that are going to lead to our survival or motivate us to do things that otherwise we'd be fearful to do but ought to do. Um, and so we, on the one hand, took anger and then looked at courage as maybe this concept that it's a conviction to love that overcomes fear. Um, and that in courage, we, we can't just merely have um, a lack of fear, because you can do um, something that, that is actually bad, um, even though you're afraid to do it, and we, we still wouldn't call that courage. There's kind of some kind of um, normative claim behind that when we're talking about courage. And so we, we felt that conviction to love actually puts those pieces together, that it's, it's both this normative claim, it's an external thing that you, you do for something, um, but that also has to be overcoming fear. It takes takes uh, 
um, some risk actually to be courageous. And so the, um, so forgive the <laughs> long definitions, but when we put those two things together and looked at the um, kind of ways that those ideas of anger and courage could interact, and um, we saw on, on one side, if you had uh, anger without courage, you were gonna be operating on some kind of scale between passivity and rage. Um, and that as you um, kind of up the ante on your anger, but without any courage, you either went from being really disengaged until something tripped your trigger. And then um, the, the kind of outworking of that is going to be some kind of violence. Um, and that, you know, when you, you have pain uh, that doesn't transform you in a positive way, you're inevitably going to be passing it off. Um, and so when we were trying to diagnose these hate crimes, we really thought, oh my God, what's happening is um, we've got people operating with a lot of anger, but no real courage. And so what, what happens is um, there's all these uh, perceived instances on campus um, for particularly white folks, um, we'll name that part, um, that, that when they engage difference, it feels threatening um, because some of the homogeneity that they grew up with um, is, is going away. And so that, that felt sense of safety isn't there for them. Um, and then uh, as, as there's not really a good way for them to uh, maybe process that, what often happens, unfortunately, is that um, that kind of gets triggered into a rage event um, and a lot of destruction is, is the fallout of that. And so we looked at that one side of it and thought, okay, well, if we, if we had this kind of scale from passivity to rage that exists on the one side, um, and we flipped to, to think about what happens if we engaged um, anger with real courage, um, we saw that there's this separate scale that's running parallel to it, and it goes somewhere between respite um, and contemplation all the way up to resistance and moral action. Um, and so when, again, you, you claim that normative part, right, that courage actually takes love, um, it takes some, some virtue um, behind it, right? That what you end up with um, is this really health, healthy and helpful feedback loop where contemplation actually is uh, this crucible that allows our, our anger to be transformed into something um, that actually motivates us toward the good that we are to be and to do in the world as Christians. And so we saw that um, when we took time to, to take healthy moments of respite, that that actually acts um, as an act of resistance and towards social justice in its own right. And the contemplation actually helps us transform um, maybe fear or resentment or anger, any of those kind of emotions that come up in our bodies toward um, something good and productive. And so we, we ultimately tried to work toward this, this idea that um, anger can actually be a gift that motivates us, but that it really takes a lot of courage uh, for that to happen. Um, and then we, we took a step back and um, worked with students on what are, what are contemplative practices that we can take up. Um, to really take the, the kind of anger that we would rightly feel at the, at the injustice that we see in the world, but motivate that toward healthy, productive, love-centered action. I think that's really helpful um, to talk about like, resources for our listeners. I mean, that's a really good, helpful resource. Can I um, push you a little bit further, Alan, and ask, like, what is that, um, what, what is that, that respite uh, look like for um, your students, what does it look like for you? What, is, what are those methods of contemplation? What do they look like and what do they turn into? I mean, what, are some of the, what, you know, what were some of the outcomes when you implemented that? Yeah, so I think a lot of it was, um, for, first of all, we're working with an interfaith group. Um, and so not, not everybody is actually working with, within a uh, Christian set of metaphors for how they think about contemplation. Um, but for, for Christian students who, who wanted to explore it, we looked at some of the Ignatian um, spiritual disciplines um, and uh, even things just like doing the daily exam and thinking through what were the points of life that I found in my day and what were the points of um, feeling like death that I found in my day um, and may where maybe do I see God's fingerprints on those. Um, and then kind of putting things through that, that uh, linear progression helped us tell a different story 
about what we felt in our lives or um, what we saw God doing in our lives. Um, but then, um, you know, I, I really can't speak to any kind of uh, uh, one-size-fits-all approach for how we think about it, but for the Christian students, we did use that contemplative framework. Um, but then, I'm, uh, you know, I'm aware that those, those kinds of frameworks exist for, for other groups, but, um, yeah, that, I, I can only really speak to uh, my tradition on, on that part. I want to uh, go to a question that um, hopefully addresses all of you, and it's something that uh, Reverend Gilmore kind of alluded to much earlier, and it is this this uh, concept of process. And so you all are um, gathering, I'm assuming, twice a year um, together, and maybe have an interaction in between those two um, conferences. But how has the process um, impacted you? If you could say, like, how has this process impacted you? Not necessarily your understanding of ministry, your understanding of call, but just how has it impacted you? Like, you know, the, the um, I believe Allison talked earlier about just being aware that in this particular conference, three Black women said safety is a privilege. So, you know, what are some of those ahas or, and, and, yeah, what are some of those impacts that the process with each other has uh, informed your own theology of identity and or the own theology or just your own process, internal process. This is Ali Lumblad again. Um, I just want to name that I think for me the biggest thing has been being able to practice being humble. Um, so earlier we were talking to Emily Towns and she said that frequently people go into reconciliation work wanting to be brilliant and that brilliance kills reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find that to be really true, that I want to make sure that I don't say anything stupid or embarrassing or offensive, um, and that my best learning happens when I say something stupid or embarrassing or offensive. Um, and so to go ahead and put the project of coming to understand each other ahead of me sounding brilliant or um, getting everything right, to me that's the practice of humility and it is central to this work. Beautiful. This is uh, Eli. Um, I think one of um, one of the benefits of, of coming together and gathering is that it has allowed me to the opportunity uh, to explore some of the nuances that, that are at play in our various contexts. Um, I think it's it's not something that I uh, that I would say that I'm completely unaware of, but it is something that I cannot name by myself. Uh, so being in conversation with other folks that are coming to the conference, whether they're uh, CTP participants or, or our guests who we are interacting with, um, does uh, bring a diversity of, of contextual experiences that, that personally have allowed me to be more aware of, this, of their significance um, and, and uh, more... Um, and, and actually name those in a way that, that I think it's, it's helpful in further understanding my own context and uh, where my own knowledge and, and, and limitations might be. Um, so it's sort of like a, a point of illumination um, into understanding what it is, uh, uh, the particular topic that we might be talking about, how it is uh, nuanced uh, depending on, on various uh, uh, elements uh, that are very contextual. That's wonderful. I really 
really can appreciate the, the piece though. And I think sometimes theology helps us realize just how limited we are um, in, in a good way though, not in a, in a way that is um, self-loathing, but in a way that is life-giving. It's like, oh, you know, there is a God and obviously God created multiple opportunities um, for God to manifest um, in humanity. So anyone else want to share reflections on your process? Um, sure, this, is, this is fresh on my mind. This is Andrew Packman uh, speaking now, but we just met with uh, Emily Towns and she was reflecting on a, on a talk she gave at a college about racial reconciliation as a process that um, we too quickly leap to the, to the end goal and uh, kind of hope to get it sorted out without going through the necessary steps of justice. And the first step that she enumerated to us was communal lament. And, you know, that's, it struck me as a, as a white pastor living in the far western suburbs of Chicago and goes to an entirely white church. I, I started just kind of to imagine what lament would even look like out there and a place that that um, is frequently shocked by videos of police brutality and uh, gang violence in Chicago and uh, there's a kind of reaction they have but I don't wouldn't say that it's lament lament means having a much richer response to it that that grieves this as a loss of life and that doesn't seek to explain it away by kind of rationalizing it or putting it into a box of just, well, this is what happens in urban areas or this is what happens when people break the law or these kind of easy uh, dismissals of, uh, of violence against black people. And so I just, it's these kind of encounters where you come, you leave your home, you come interact with, uh, people in a new city who are thinking about these things differently and who are drawing on the same Bible that we all read, but pulling out parts of it that we don't read and we don't see in the same way. And so it's just, it's a way of remembering that theology can actually disclose and reveal things about our world that we don't otherwise see. And that not just theology, but other people who are doing theology with us and thinking about the Bible and pulling out different parts like that process is revelatory. It shows us things that we don't otherwise see. And, and that's something to be recovered. That's something to do as a group here, but to also find ways to do all the time in every congregation and the disciples of Christ. That's, that's what the business of the church is. And it's God who's doing the revealing. And so we should be listening and looking and playing that game. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really helpful. And, and I want to say my observations from our conversation uh, today has been, as I asked this question about process and how this process has impacted you as, 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 as participants in the conference, members of the CTP, is that their process is really playing out in, even in our conversation. Um, you've had a grueling two days. Um, we try to, you know, when we gather, we're like, okay, we have these many hours and we're going to do twice as many things we actually accomplish in these many hours. But you've had some very deep conversations, some things that required, as Alan said, some contemplation, but not a whole bunch of time to process because it's on to the next thing. Um, and, and then coming off of a conversation with uh, Dr. Emily Towns, um, 
and, and then right into this uh, interview. So not a whole bunch of time to really kind of de uh, decompress and construct that. But in, in many times, um, this is this, this is the work, right? So the, the beautiful thing of having the CTP and the conference is to come together to be, um, as Eli said, you know, to just uh, become aware of the knowledge that we bring, but also to be aware, aware of the way in which the process informs us of, you know, our, our, our knowledge as well as our limitations. And I think that is really the resource that this offers to our listeners as well, is that it, it's not... Um, Theology is, it's not a, it's not an end game. It is a process. It's like rec racial reconciliation. It is the, the thing that we uh, really want to promote when we talk about reconciliation is that it's generational work. And when I first started directing this work, but I think it's even more than that. It, it is the um, already and not yet. And it is what you all are doing. It is being in conversation with um folks who are having different experiences, folks who are hearing the same thing and yet hearing it differently. One, as Ali said, one, because you're thinking about your context and one, because of your own lived experience, right? So I think that this um, Contemporary Theologies Project and these conferences really help us learn as we hear from you and you guys give us this wonderful resource that you have on your website that it's okay if we allow ourselves to have that time to step back and to be in the moment of listening to folks whose experience and whose um, knowledge is different than our very own. So I thank you all so much for taking this time out of your um, rapid fire, thinking from the Firehose uh, conference there in Nashville and sharing with us. And, and I just wanna say uh, thank you to Reverend Yvonne Gilmore for putting this time on your schedule and for all of you taking time to be with us on What's the Tea with Reconciliation. Are there any final thoughts or comments from anyone there before we say goodbye to our listeners and um, maybe uh, talk with you guys again soon on another podcast interview? We just wanna say thank you, uh, Reconciliation Ministries. We're grateful for the grant that, that makes a difference not only for the individual uh, leaders, uh, but that Constructive Theologies uh, project, even through this podcast, might share uh, what God is up to uh, with, the, with the wider church. So thank you. And follow us on Facebook. We'll do. And, and your Facebook, follow you on Facebook, Constructive Theologies Project. Yes. And, and our, our website. website is constructivetheologies.org. Constructive Wonderful. Well, that's our show for today. Stay connected with us on social media. We're at DLC Reconcile on Twitter, Reconciliation Ministry on Facebook, and on our website at reconciliationministry.org. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening.